Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. We pray that you will be greatly blessed as you listen to this sermon, delivered verse by verse by Pastor Teacher Ben Dowdy. Join us as we are pointed to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in God's Holy Word. So we come to the end of Mark, and it is really strange. I believe, and and most who study the manuscripts of Scripture believe that Mark ends abruptly at verse 8. Now, if you look down at your Bible, depending on what translation you have, there may be a little... I guess parentheses below verse 8, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. How many of you see that between verse 8 and 9? Raise your hand. So if you have maybe a King James version or perhaps some other versions, it will not have that. But I wrestled with this because in verse 8, you see... Words like trembling and fled and astonishment and afraid. And then it just ends. And we just sang because he lives. And and we have hope for tomorrow. So what gives? Why is Mark's ending so different than Matthew and Luke and John, which go into the eyewitness accounts of people that saw Jesus and touched Jesus and ate with Jesus after his resurrection. So today we want to consider the unusual ending. The unusual ending. This is, uh, it's just like he stops and it doesn't seem right. He just cuts it off right here. And, And it feels like it should just keep going. But I will say that it fits Mark's personality. You know, Mark just jumps into his gospel in verse 1 and chapter 1 by announcing the gospel of Jesus, the record of Jesus, the Son of God. And he jumps right into John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. So he just kind of starts abruptly and he ends abruptly. It almost feels like instead of landing the plane... On the landing strip, he just kind of parachutes down from the plane, right? And you're like, well, where does the plane land? Well, thankfully, the Holy Spirit has given us Matthew and Luke and John to show us where the plane lands. And I think that we can be confident that this is God-breathed Scripture, So let's just think for a minute, this is all by way of introduction about the unusual ending by asking the question, why exclude verses 9 to 20? I mean, some of you may be saying, well, why not? Can we give the same weight to verses 9 to 20? Is this God-breathed sacred writing? And I would argue that we should probably not consider it to be on equal authority as the rest of Scripture. And uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me give you a couple of broad, sweeping 
reasons why I say that. First of all, the external evidence. This has to do with textual criticism. This has to do with classes that are taught in seminary. We've taught in past connections class years ago about uh, the canon of Scripture and how do we know that the Bible is, in fact, the authoritative, inerrant, God-breathed Scripture? How do we know it's different than the writings of Shakespeare or the writings of, of Muhammad or Joseph Smith? And that is a very interesting study. I think the basic idea is that if you look at all of the manuscripts that have been discovered from the first century until recently, and you weigh all of that evidence together, the evidence speaks against verses 9 to 20 being included in the Gospel of Mark. I think there's also some inner, internal evidence. Think about the abrupt Transition from verse 8, where it talks about they were afraid, and then all of a sudden, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't flow. There's inconsistent vocabulary. Mark has a particular style of authorship, of writing. And in verses 9 to 20 are 18 words that are new to Mark never before used in the first 16 chapters of Mark. There's some strange themes in verses 9 to 20. The theme of gospel proclamation, that's new language, foreign to Mark. There's no post-resurrection discussions in Matthew or Luke or John of signs attesting miracles, the breaking of natural law that is referenced in verses 9 to 20. Things like picking up, handling snakes, speaking in new tongues, those things besides drinking poison. You can't find drinking poison anywhere in Scripture, but the other signs are piecemeal together like a patchwork collage from many other writings, but they're not found after his bodily resurrection in Matthew, Luke, or John. And so I think what may have happened and what many believe happened is that people like you and me in the early church and beyond came to Mark chapter 16 and verse 8 and they said, it can't end like that. <laughs> we got to help this out a little bit. I mean, the last word after the resurrection is the word afraid. I mean, that doesn't work. And so it's almost like the early church and others took freedom to create this patchwork collage. And they picked a phrase out of Acts and a phrase over here. And they put all of that together and created verses, at least in our modern translation. We, we mark it by verse distinctions. Um, Verses 9 to 20. But I would argue that in, and I, I'm in good company here, that, that verse 8 is in fact the ending of Mark. And, 
And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we walk through this together. Why? I, had to, I was talking to Marcy about this, like, why? Why the last verse speak about trembling, astonishment, and being afraid and fleeing? And that's it. That's just it. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the time together. So I want us to kind of walk through these final eight verses in three waves. We're going to look at the record. In other words, we're just going to walk through verses one to eight and, and make some comments about, highlight some things, okay? And then after that, we're going to consider the relevance. I mean, there are people, maybe you're among them, that's like, well, did Jesus really physically come alive again? You've watched the History Channel. You've watched uh, scholars with PhDs by their name. He got put in the wrong tomb. His body was stolen. He, he swooned, but he never physically died. And all of those arguments. And there is a really helpful study that all of us could do to prove as so many like Josh McDowell and lawyers from the past and the present who have taken a real interest in the bodily resurrection of Christ because it is the Mount Everest of Christianity. It's like giving your son a car on his 16th birthday. It's got the mag wheels. It's got the stripes. And you hand him the key and he turns the key and nothing. And he opens the hood and there's no engine under the hood. So if you take the resurrection of Jesus out of the gospel of Mark, you rip Christianity's shreds. It's gone. And we might as well go home and eat nachos and tee up on the first tea box at the country club or painted dunes or ascarate depending on what your budget is, then hang out here and sing songs about because he lives. It makes no sense. But I think for every one of you that might be questioning whether Jesus really did bodily rise from the dead, most of you are saying, man, what relevance does Jesus' resurrection have to do with my suffering and my besetting sin problem and the broken relationships in my life? Am I right? Most of you are wondering what difference it makes in my life. So we want to talk about that. And then at the end, we want to briefly respond to the gospel of Mark and particularly the ending of verse 8. So what difference does this Jesus make in my life and does it make in your life? So let's start by looking at the record and if you're in chapter 16, notice, first of all, a significant adjustment. You might want to put the word change in there. In verse 1, it says, when the Sabbath was passed. Now, this would have been sundown on Saturday. They didn't have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The Jews had Sabbath, and they had the first day after Sabbath, the second and the third day. Everything in their calendar was measured around the Sabbath. And there was going to be no bearing going on. There was going to be no uh, anointing of the body of the corpse going on during Sabbath, which started at sundown Friday and ended at sundown on 
Saturday. So when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices. They could go and get the spices after sundown on Saturday so that they might go and anoint him. That's not anointing him hoping that he's going to rise from the dead. There's no expectation of that. We celebrate that it happened. They had zero expectation of that. These women, when the men had long disappeared, are there. They love, loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. This is an act of love. They want to go and anoint his body before decay sets in. The putrid smell sets in. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And so we see an adjustment. This was the last Sabbath. It's gone. Everything from here forward is the first day of the week. Now, Grace Bible Fellowship will celebrate Easter Sunday on, I believe it's April the 12th. But make no mistake, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2, that the church laid aside a special love offering the first day of the week. You see in Acts 20 and verse 7, that the church met on the first day of the week. You see in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, on the Lord's day. You could call Sunday the Lord's day. Now, is every day the Lord's day? Absolutely. But make no mistake, this is an adjustment. Hundreds of years, Sabbath, Saturday. Resurrection, the Lord's day. Not only do we see an adjustment, we can track an assumption. And this is all the way throughout here. We've already referenced it a bit. They go to the tomb, verse 3, saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. Now you have to go to the other three gospels and discover that there was great fear that the disciples were going to steal the body of Christ because he had prophesied that he would rise again. And so Roman guards were set in place. A stone, a massive stone that no man or woman could have possibly moved was shoved in front of this new tomb of the rich man that we looked at last Sunday. And so looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. I just want you to see all the way through here that the expectation, the assumption is that Jesus is now two plus days dead. That what they are going to discover if they could have gotten into the tomb is a dead corpse already 
moving rapidly towards the time of decay on the fourth day. The body starts decomposing. A doctor can correct me later if I'm wrong on that. But I would say that the language and then the reaction speaks loudly. The disciples have fled. The male guys, they're gone. They're hiding. They are afraid they're going to get crucified. The ladies are the only ones showing up. And they're doing this with no expectation just to show their love and their devotion for Christ. They think the mission is done. The hope is dashed. Is your hope dashed this morning? The ladies could identify with you. Maybe your hope for your marriage, your family conflict is dashed. These women, it's kind of crazy because when your hope is gone, it's hard to do the anointing, isn't it? I mean, love hopes all things. So then, just, just to say, there's no expectation here. And then the announcement. We kind of see that beginning in verse 6. Well, verse 5 says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man. Other gospels indicate that it was one of two angels. Interesting that Mark doesn't say angel. He says young man. He doesn't reference two. He references one young man. Perhaps the primary spokesperson of the two angels. So they see him sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were, what's the next word? Alarmed. They're alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. They had been there at the crucifixion. These ladies had been there at the burial or moving towards the burial. We know ultimately it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that teamed up to bury in a rich man's tomb, the body, the corpse of Christ before sundown on Friday. But the women are just there. And then he says, come see the place where they laid him. But in the middle of that, he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. You know, what is missing in the whole of the eight Verses, Jesus, he's not here. You have an empty tomb. You have eyewitnesses. You have an angelic announcement, but no Jesus, he's not here. See the place where they laid him, and then there's a command, but go tell his disciples, what's the next two words? And Peter. Where did we leave Peter off in the story? Oh, my goodness. He's in a courtyard in the middle of the night. Jesus is being illegally tried in the middle of the night. And a servant girl says to Peter, you were one of those with Jesus. That's the last time we see Peter. And he is vehemently denying that he even knows Jesus. I do not know this man. That's the last time. 
that we saw Peter. Is it any wonder that the angelic messenger says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Personal word for Peter. Isn't that encouraging? How many of you have regrets and failures? I think the word for us is go and tell Ben. You know that thing that gives him angst? I want to restore him and I want to use him or her. So encouraging. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Then you shall see him just as he told you. I mean, they should have gotten it. You and I look back at it like chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. Jesus is constantly saying things like the Son of Man is going to suffer. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise from the dead. And at one point, Peter looks at him and said, May it never happen to you, Jesus. And we know from a parallel gospel account that Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You see, the cross had to come before the crown. And so he gives the ladies an assignment. And then verse Eight, you see this astonishment. They went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment, you could say amazement, had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And that's the end. Don't you want a little relief from that? How many of you want to leave here terrified after we sing, Because He Lives? How many of you want to run and hide in the hills because of the coronavirus scare after we sang because he lives? I don't know about you, but fleeing and trembling and afraidness, I don't like that. So why does Mark end it like this? Here, abruptly, cuts it off. I think that based on a commentator that I read and a sermon that I read the manuscript of, of a well-known preacher, that was helpful to me because they both said that, that Mark is being true to form. He's just being true to form. I mean, all the way through the, the gospel of Mark, you see Jesus showing up proving that he's the Son of Man, capital S, capital M, and the Son of God. And people are astonished and afraid. You see his disciples on the Sea of Galilee being more afraid of God in the boat than the storm outside of the boat. Do you remember that story? They're astonished. You see the disciples in the Mount of Transfiguration and The father is speaking about his son and saying amazing things about his son. And they are, wow. And I, and I thought to myself, why would Grace Bible Fellowship spend two years, minus a lot of holidays, guest speakers, and miniseries where we stepped out of Mark, to go through Mark if we're not amazed and astonished at Jesus? 
Why would you do that? Because the gospel of Mark keeps running up against amazement and astonishment. And wow, Jesus, that, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I mean, why would we not react that way? We'll come back to that again towards the end. But I want to move from looking briefly, as we've done at the record of verses 1 to 8, to looking at the relevance of the resurrection. The relevance of the resurrection. You know, one of the things that is difficult for me, perhaps for some of you, is to attend funerals. How many of you just really enjoy funerals? I mean, you enjoy celebrating the legacy of the loved one's life. And, and once in a while, it will slip out in a testimony or an officiating minister will say that death is just a normal part of life. That is hogwash. And you say, well, you know, Granny lived to be 80 years old. She made it to be an octogenarian. She lived a full life. How many of you are glad to see Grandma go? I don't think that death is normal because 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is our last enemy. It's our last enemy. And unless... Your octogenarian grandma was struggling and quivering and having a hard time getting out of a rocking chair to go to the bathroom. That was like a major Mount Everest climb for her. So yeah, you're, you're ready for her to release from this life just to spare her the pain. But death is not our friend. It's our enemy. If you talk to granny at age 80, she's not thinking, yeah, I want to die. If they're in Christ, she wants to go see Jesus. She wants to be released from this world of sin and suffering, absolutely. But death is not our friend. It is not like eating. It is not like drinking a cup of tea. It is not like sticking that warmed up Boston cream donut and popping that in your mouth. Death is not like that. It is not a normal part of life. Where in the world did it come from? We don't have time to go there, but if you were to look at Genesis chapter 3, you would have been reminded that the creator of human life told the first man and the first woman that you can eat of any tree in the garden except for one. In the day you eat of that tree, you'll die. And that promise came true. When they ate of that tree, they died spiritually, and in some ways, they died relationally, and later, they died physically. And Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and the order here, death by sin and then it says, all die because all have sinned. So you have sin and then you have death. 
You have relational spiritual death, then you have physical death. And so when, uh, when we look at the relevance of the bodily resurrection of Christ, it addresses our greatest fear and our last enemy head on. And so I want us to consider this in two waves under the idea of relevance. The first thing I want you to consider is the magnitude of bodily resurrection. The magnitude of bodily resurrection. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just want to spend a few minutes walking you through the relevance of bodily resurrection. The Apostle Paul had received a concern from the church in Corinth. Apparently, there were a few people attending the called-out assembly in the city of Corinth that there is no future bodily resurrection of believers. If there's any type of future resurrection, these folks were saying, it doesn't involve them being reunited with their physical being. And so Paul spends 58, listen to this, 58 verses <laughs> addressing this heresy. And it's kind of like a domino thing. He sort of starts at the back end. And he said, here's the basic argument, and I'll walk you through it briefly. But he says, if there's no future bodily resurrection of believers, in other words, if my mom and dad buried at Fort Bliss, Ken Dowdy in 1993, Doris Dowdy buried on top of him in 2015. If there is no sense in which Ken and Doris Dowdy, who both died in Christ, will someday be reunited with their body, a glorified, sinless, attractive, ageless body that loves Jesus all the time, worships Jesus. Paul, that was great worship. Nothing compared to what's going to go on up there. Then he said, if that's not true, then Christ has not been raised. You have a car without an engine. So let's think about it. Let's look at verses 12 to 19 if you're in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to make a few comments. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism in the New Testament for the death of believers. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
So let's think this through just from that little part of Paul's 58 verse long argument. The first thing you can write down is if there's no future resurrection of our bodies, then our message has no teeth. Look at verse 14 and also again in verse 17. Your preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile. There's no point in expository preaching. There's no point in topical preaching. There's no point in connections Bible study. There's no reason for us to start to study a marriage class when two sinners say I do because there's no hope for the sinner. First, furthermore, our confidence has no basis. Look at verse 15. Because you see, the apostles, Paul and others, were misrepresenting God, if that be true, because they're saying God raised Jesus from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So your message has no teeth, your confidence has no basis, you are taking cues from liars, the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, John Mark, the writer of Mark, They're all liars. They're lying. You have faulty writers. You say, well, Ben, can't we extract a good moral teaching about marriage and raising kids and living a pure life and enjoying the sunrise? What Paul is saying, listen to me, if there's no future resurrection of the dead like dominoes, it all falls down. Let's eat nachos. Let's go eat some enchiladas. Let's go to the ball game. Let's cancel church. We still have a sin problem that needs solving. Verse 17, at the end, you are still in your sins. That guilt that you raised your hand in the air and worshiped Jesus for cleaning away your sin debt, that's just a laughing stock. There's no point in that. There's no hope at the next funeral. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You could kind of just sum it up and say we have a pathetic religion. You see, the very cornerstone of the Christian gospel is the bodily resurrection of Christ. Paul looks at the end game, which is the future bodily resurrection of all believers. And he walks backward and he says, if there's no future resurrection of Ken and Doris Doughty buried at Fort Bliss Cemetery of their body, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, this is stupidity. Let's disband. Let's go back and finish off those Krispy Kremes that I never got to at Continental Breakfast today or whatever they, wherever they were from. My mouth's watering for them. What he's saying is that the bodily resurrection of believers and the bodily resurrection of Christ are like Siamese twins. They are inseparable. They rise or they fall together. So we need to consider the magnitude of bodily resurrection. And then I think a second area is we just need to celebrate God's campaign for life. We need to celebrate God's campaign for life. 
And as you kind of walk through the storyline of the Bible, you see this. If you want to go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the middle of the promise and the expectation of sin and suffering, of thorns and thistles, of labor when you have a baby, because of the onslaught of sin that started in Genesis chapter 3, God gives hope. He gives hope. Look at verse 15 of Genesis 3. God is speaking to the serpent. We know that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, spoke through the serpent. And here's what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You could even say, Judas Iscariot, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish religious leaders all represented the serpent's offspring. Between your offspring and her offspring, Jesus, the Messiah, can be traced back to Adam and Eve. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. I want you to think about that, and I want you to go to the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. Now let's go to the end of the story. Go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. By the way, whatever your prophetic views are of the end times, we can all agree that the final book of the Bible speaks of the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus wins. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. And if you go to verse 17 and 18 of chapter 1, the Apostle John is given a vision of Christ. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. You want to know what the continuation is? Of Mark 16, verse 8. Jesus is alive forevermore. And he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. You know, every now and again, you see these guys, you can Google this, you know, they found the secret of living a long life. Have you seen those? I like EP Fitness because they're at least honest. They said, we may not be able to add years to your life. We can add life to your years. So they're a little more honest about that. But the, rea the reality is every day in our world, 153,000 people die. I think it was George Bernard Shaw says, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One in one die. One in one die. Unless the rapture happens... While we're still alive and remaining, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, all of us are going to walk through death. Unless God repeats the Enoch thing. We're all going to die. And the question is, who in human history has the key that unlocks the door to the holding tank of the dead and to death itself? And Jesus 
speaks to the Apostle John by the power of the Spirit, and he says, I have the keys. How many of you have gone through the process of getting qualified for a loan to move into a home? Can I see your hand? How many of you hope to go through that process someday? (laughs) I know the next big thing is tiny houses and living in sprinter vans. But probably a lot of us have or will go through that process. And so, you know, they run all of these checks on you, your credit scores, the whole nine yards. But you don't really feel like you take ownership of that home until they hand you the keys, right? And then you walk up to the threshold, and for the first time, you turn the lock. Jesus holds the keys to that which no escrow company can give you. The keys to death and to Hades. What about the middle? We've looked at the beginning and we've looked at the end. What about the middle? The book of Acts. We could spend the rest of our time doing this, but we're not. I'm just going to give you a quick summation of Acts. Let's pretend like you had buckets. You went through the 28 chapters of Acts and every bucket represented a theme. The theme of the power of the Holy Spirit. The theme of being witnesses. The theme of repentance and faith. The theme of seeing the word of God increase and grow in concentric circles from Jerusalem to Rome over 30 years through ordinary, unlearned Galilean fishermen, Acts 4.13 tells us. But if you could divide up all of the buckets of the themes of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of the Apostles, you know which bucket would be overflowing more than any other bucket? It was the theme of the resurrection of Christ. These same men that were not there with the ladies that first resurrection morning, they had fled and were hiding. They were so transformed by seeing the risen Christ that they went everywhere, I mean everywhere, saying, you killed him, we are eyewitnesses of it, and God raised him. It's like a broken record over and over again in the book of Acts. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. You know what that tells me? If you and I are doing gospel conversations, the resurrection of Christ should be at the forefront of our tongue and our speech. We should just be busting to tell people about the resurrection of Christ. And then what about 1 Corinthians 15? If you're back there, you want to look at this. This is stunning. For 57 verses, Paul is building an argument, an irrefutable irrefutable argument that there is a future bodily resurrection of, of, of the dead, of those who die in Christ, of the resurrection of Christ, and then he gives one application. I don't know about you, I like the application, but it's only one verse. Look at verse 58. I think we have to at least do a couple verses before that. Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That bee that landed on your shoulder, somebody took the stinger out. They can do nothing to you. It's the sting of death removed. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always, always, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What is the implication of bodily resurrection? Moms, keep on serving your kids as unto the Lord. Parents, keep on diligently and speedily teaching your children to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, Ben, it doesn't seem to be resonating. Oh, Ben, what if it doesn't work? Oh, Ben, what if they go fall away from Christ? He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain ever, ever because of the resurrection. So we need to celebrate God's campaign for life because we are stuck between Genesis 3 and between Revelation 19, aren't we? We're right there. We know what the beginning of story says and we know that the end of the story is that God will make all things new. Revelation 21 verse 5, there will be no sickness, there will be no tombstones, there will be no death, there will be no tears. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. So the things that gave you insomnia last night and you couldn't sleep three nights ago, all of that will be gone if you're in Christ. The sorrow you feel from losing your mom some years ago, the wound in your heart that that has not replaced, it will be gone when you're in the presence of Christ. You see, the resurrection changes everything. Everything. So if you go back to, Matt, um, to Mark chapter 16, how do we respond? In some ways to the entire book of Mark, but particularly to the ending of Mark. Let's look at the verse again. It's a weird ending. I still acknowledge to you it's abrupt, but it's so like Mark. What does it say? They went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were what? Afraid. They were afraid. I'm going to help you out a little bit here in a minute, but let me just ask you, are you astonished at Jesus? Are you amazed at Jesus? Alfredo Tavares, one of the missionaries Grace Bible Fellowship has supported for years. He's a missionary in Juarez. He went to Cuba years ago. And he saw Carlos Alomino, an evangelist in Cuba, witnessing to a man in the fields. And for the first time in this man's life, the first time in his life, he heard that Christ had died on a cross to pay the penalty of sin, that God had raised him from the dead. And Alfredo could look at that man and he could say, he was astonished. 
And he thought of the song. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful as song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When is the last time you were astonished at the good news? Has it grown old? Has it grown old? Ask the Holy Spirit to wow you with the gospel. Let me help you out a little bit. Let's go back and consider the beginning of Mark and the end of Mark. Back in chapter 1, in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 15, Jesus, proclaiming the good news of God, says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It isn't until chapter 15 and verse 39 that a man, a Roman soldier no less, says, truly this was the Son of God. The demons had said it. The Father had said it. But it wasn't until almost the end of the story that a human confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. I remember doing a training seminar in Richmond so many years ago, and a man came up to us after the session on the deity of Christ, and he says, you know, I thought I got right with God when I was 12, but he said it wasn't until years later that I realized that Jesus was God in human flesh. And I said, Jesus, command me. And that's when I was saved. Jesus, command me. You are my Lord, my master, my God. Is that you this morning, perhaps? You've been around religion and Christianity and church and Bible studies and talking the talk and even trying to walk the walk. You have a form of godliness, but deny the source and the power of godliness, which is Christ. Christ, fully God, became fully man without ceasing to be fully God, living the life you couldn't live, dying the death that you deserved. God is pleased and satisfied with his sacrifice for you, and raises him from the dead. Do you believe it? That's where life begins. Let me close you with this. If you're already in Mark 1, go back one page to Matthew chapter 28. To Matthew chapter 28. Thankfully, Matthew's gospel takes us a bit further than Mark 16 and verse 8. Look at Matthew 28 and notice... In verse 6, well, let's start in verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with what? Fear. That's where Mark's... 16.8 ends, but Matthew doesn't end there. What, is, what else did they depart with? Great joy. What did they do? What did they do? You can say it. 
Help me with the sermon. They ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And what did they do? They took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. They worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But John Newton goes on to say, and grace, my fears relieved. There's a kind of fear that the gospel instills in you, and there's a kind of fear that it releases you from. What are you afraid of? That kind of fills out the story, doesn't it? There is fear. There is astonishment. There is a witness. There is a worshiping. There is a telling. Why don't we stand together and respond by praying and then singing in response to this. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it is... uh, Amazing that we get to study it together and look at Christ as you have revealed him in your holy book. Thank you for the faithful record of Mark. Thank you for the resurrection. Holy Spirit, set the captive free this morning through Christ. Holy Spirit, comfort the afflicted through Christ. Holy Spirit, humble the proud through Christ. Holy Spirit, grant us more of Christ. Christ only, Christ always. Thank you that he holds the keys to death and to Hades, that he is the living one. Christ's name, amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's sing together. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. for Connections, and 10 a.m. to 12.30 for our worship service. We are located at 1385 Northwestern Drive on the west side of El Paso, along with our hosting sister church, Mission de Gracia. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-861-6900 or visit our website at gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.